It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. A bit of drama at the Today Show yesterday morning when Savannah Guthrie mysteriously left the program after the first 20 minutes. Initially, there wasn't any explanation, and then the woman who was filling in for Hoda, Shinelle Jones, said, first she said, well, Shannon had to leave a little early, and then she came out and said she wasn't feeling great, she took a COVID test, it came back positive, Savannah, we love you, wishing you a speedy recovery. Uh, and Al Roker was on the set at that point, and he was recently hospitalized for a few weeks uh, with blood clots in his lungs, and he kind of slowly moved away from Jones and said, luckily, Shinell was sitting between me and Savannah as a light moment. Um, this is the third time Savannah Guthrie has had COVID-19. She tested positive twice last year. Uh, I guess, obviously, when you're in the studio, you come into contact with a lot of people, but we do wish her well. And she must have had it for a couple of days because the fact that she wasn't feeling well meant that she felt these symptoms already. Well, yesterday, not knowing, having closely followed the Chicago mayoral election, I read this piece by Jonathan Martin in Politico, which basically said that Mayor Lori Lightfoot was clinging to the hope that she could make the runoff and made pretty clear that she was kind of a long shot. Well, that was totally right on. Lori Lightfoot not even making the runoff, losing her bid for a second term. Uh, she was running against a guy named Paul Vallis, who's a public school executive, and Brandon Johnson, a county board commissioner. It's the first time since 1989 that a Chicago mayor has uh, failed to win re-election. And it was all about crime. It was also about looting uh, during uh, the coronavirus and in 2020 during the urban riots. But she talked about crime, and she took the position that uh, one of her opponents wanted to defund the police, or at least had said that at one point, and she was not into that at all. She wanted to have more police, so she was totally riding the crime issue, but it didn't work. And, you know, aside from that particular issue, which I think has resonance in a lot of cities, which is why this is of interest, to me at least, beyond people who live or work in Chicago, is the idea that Personality matters, and from watching her in action, Lori Lightfoot has always struck me as a rather cold person. And I remember her bashing the media on a couple of occasions. She said she would not, she would uh, give preference to black journalists because she didn't like the way the white media establishment was covering her. I mean, she's entitled to say what she wants, but um, she just didn't come across as somebody you'd want to spend a lot of time with personally. And, you know, there are some Who's, who are so talented politically that they can overcome that. But she only got 17% of the vote as an incumbent mayor, whereas Vallis got 34% and Johnson 20%. So she was not even close, and she uh, will be out at the end of her term. Uh, Twitter, more layoffs from Twitter, really? 200 more people uh, laid off by Elon Musk. I know he's trying to save money somewhere, but... You hope there's enough people there to still keep the lights on. I mean, mostly I haven't had any problem. Uh, meanwhile, NPR, I haven't had a chance to mention this, laying off 10% of its staff. Uh, tough times for all media organizations uh, and tech companies as well. 
you know, I have a column today about the whole Dilbert controversy, and it goes a little further than when I was talking to you about it yesterday. So you know the basic Scott Adams did this, what I would all describe as a racist rant on his YouTube channel, calling blacks a hate group um, and telling whites to stay the hell away from blacks. And then suddenly, boom, all of these hundreds of newspapers dropping the call one by one and then his syndicate dropping him. So it, there's no more Dilbert in newspapers. He's going to make it available on his pay site. But he's done videos the last two days in which he's talked more about this. And I want to be fair and explain his point of view. He says, first of all, when I called blacks a hate group, that was just hyperbole. Okay, I think that is a really lame and weak defense, hate group. Um, he said when he told whites to stay away from blacks, it wasn't really about race. Here's how he describes it. Things are so bad in the black community that they're disproportionately likely to live in poor neighborhoods where there's a lot of crime. Is that racist? Well, you're making sort of two leaps there. Obviously, there is more crime in poorer neighborhoods. But why would you link that to blacks? He says disproportionately likely. But, you know, he could have explained it that way, and he didn't. Uh, he could have made these distinctions. Instead, while he was ranting, he said, look, I'm, I'm destroying my career, right? There's no coming back from this, right? He knew what he was doing. He says he's not a victim. Have you heard me say, oh, now I won't be able to eat? He blames the media, saying it was a bunch of rich white people, newspaper leaders, who do not live around black people, and they decided to cancel me. And if I wasn't white, Dilbert would not have been dropped. Okay. And then he goes on to take these shots. First of all, the one thing I wanted to mention was he gave more details, Scott Adams did, about earlier in his career where he worked at two different banks in California. And in both banks, after a certain period of time, his bosses at the first bank, his boss at the first bank told him, you can't be promoted here because you're white. At the second bank, his boss told him directly, he says, you can't be promoted here because you're white and male. So he quit and started Dilbert, which obviously turned out to be a pretty good uh, career move. But, you know, he knows that words matter. And here's, here's what he's saying. The entire media made it about race. Zero members of the media have reported what I said in context. Could it be that the race industrial complex is once again finding ways to monetize race. Uh, I just think that, um, you know, uh, he was throwing out these hand grenades and he seemed quite aware at the time that the effect of these hand grenades was going to be to blow up his career. And he did it anyway. And now he's saying, well, it really wasn't. I wasn't trying to say this. I was trying to put it this way. It's the media's fault. Okay. I mean, I know a lot of people like Scott Adams and a lot of people like Dilbert, but that's his explanation. Meanwhile, Elon Musk still drawing flack for tweeting, the media is racist. For a very long time, U.S. media was racist against non-white people. Now they're racist against whites and Asians. Quick update from across the pond. King Charles is evicting Prince Harry and Meghan from Frogmore College. I love these names that they give these properties. And has offered it to Prince Andrew, according to London's Sun. The Sussexes are now drawing up plans to ship their remaining belongings to the U.S. The move, which follows the allegations that Harry and Meghan have made about the royal family and the publication of Harry's book, um, throws into doubt 
the chances of them being invited to Charles's coronation in May. Meanwhile, Andrew, who's described here as disgraced uh, because of his past association with Jeffrey Epstein, uh, was offered the keys to the five-bed Windsor home last week. But look, I mean, they live in the United States now. What, they were going to go back once a year, and this is supposed to be available to them as a hotel? I, I mean, I don't really see the problem. They've got plenty of money. They're living uh, in some beautiful palatial state in California. So this is like, okay, you've moved on. You've graduated from college, and we're now going to rent out your house. Um, Ron DeSantis uh, has a, a book out, so he's making the rounds, and he gets asked at every stop, what about this thing that Donald sent about you? And DeSantis in one interview said, look, this is silly season. You know how some of this stuff goes. Obviously, he does his thing, and that's kind of who he is, meaning Donald. But what I wanted to do was give an honest appraisal of how we got to this point, failures of the D.C. Republican establishment, and how Donald Trump was speaking to things that some of the old guard refused to address. That's just a fact. He can say what he wants about me. I always give him credit for the things that he did that were positive, and I'm appreciative of a lot of things he did. Doesn't mean I agree with him on everything that he's doing lately or whatever, but ultimately it's about delivering for the people you represent. So I wasn't trying to throw pot shots at anybody. Does that sound like a guy who doesn't want to alienate Donald Trump's voters or Trump himself? It sure does to me. Uh, and just briefly, Variety has a piece about what is CNN going to do about its 9 p.m. Eastern show uh, because that's, you know ever since uh, Chris Cuomo left, that's been vacant for a very long time. So, you know, you hear all these things. Oh, Jon Stewart's going to do it. Oh, you know, Charles Barkley's going to do it. But now apparently they're going to have news. And it's going to be called CNN Primetime. And it's going to be not one anchor. And so that's interesting. I guess they couldn't find somebody, Chris Lick couldn't find somebody, who they thought had sufficient, I don't know, personality, clout, charisma, you name it, to keep viewers in their seats and compete with Sean Hannity and Alex Wagner and or Rachel Maddow. So they're saying that, you know, they may use some people who are full-time CNN people or if a CNN anchor has a good scoop during the day, they'll get the hour. Or they may use some people who don't directly work for CNN, could be brought in uh, now and then. Uh, or if there's a really good interview, for example, Bill Maher was interviewed by Jake Tapper uh, yesterday and said that he was afraid at one point that Donald Trump was going to go after him and he'd end up in Guantanamo. Um but the problem, as Variety points out, is that straight news doesn't generate the viewership, especially in prime time. So I'm not quite sure what this will look like. It seems like they're just trying to throw spaghetti against the wall and find something that will work. Um, now, I suppose if, you know, you don't, you know, you would flip around and say, well, I wonder what CNN has tonight. But if it's just sort of more news that's not that different from the news during the day, then I don't see how it gets much traction. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Precise, personal, powerful. It's America's weather team in the palm of your hands. Get Fox weather updates throughout your busy day, every day. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, story number one. The Supreme Court of the United States hearing oral argument 
on the Biden plan to uh, wipe out a lot of student debt, college debt, 400 billion worth, in fact. And it seemed pretty clear from uh, everybody's write-up, him looking here at a New York Times story, that members of the conservative majority, which, which remember is the 6-3 conservative majority, very skeptical that this was legal. Very skeptical. Chief Justice John Roberts saying the administration had violated separation of powers principles by acting without explicit congressional authorization. Since this is a huge move, and since um, the court, the conservative majority in the court generally believes that Congress, you have to go back to Congress if you're going to do something big, that you can't just say, hey, I've got a lot of executive authority here, so I'll just tell all these students that they don't have to repay their loans. Also, this was done, I don't know whether the case will turn on this, but this was done during the COVID emergency. And so the argument was, first of all, what they did was they they froze the repayments. So suddenly, all the students who took out loans or just owed the money didn't have to repay the money right away. That's being dropped. And that's just the way it goes. We're not in the middle of a full-scale coronavirus lockdown um, with horrible economic conditions. Um, so that could be a factor. Now, Justice Lagan Kagan, Lena Kagan, excuse me, uh, said the language of uh, what's called the HEROES Act plainly authorized the administration to act in light of the pandemic. Now, here's the thing. I always thought this would get thrown out of court. Members of the Biden administration thought it would get thrown out of court. That there was an argument within the administration at the time saying this was unconstitutional. Biden did it anyway. Why? Because we were coming up on the midterm elections. And this was hugely popular, obviously, with young people. They could get relief for either $10,000 or if they had taken out a, or did receive a Pell Grant, $20,000. Get that money back. So young people already kind of like Joe over Donald, and they turned out in large numbers. So you could say that if it was a campaign gambit, at least in part, it worked. On the other hand, if it gets thrown out of court, it's just sort of a hoax. There were a bunch of uh, students protesting outside the Supreme Court yesterday and saying, you know, um, basically, we want this money. The thing that bugged me most about it, constitutional arguments aside and campaign ploys aside, was that it favored this one group and all the people who didn't go to college have to subsidize that through their taxes if, in fact, it were to go through, which now seems very much in doubt. All the people who went to college and repaid their loans, they don't get anything. They did the responsible thing. These other people still owe the money, maybe after many, many years. And the group of people who are in need of this relief, generally speaking, are, because they have college degrees, are in better financial shape than the truck drivers and the nurses or others who perhaps didn't get a college degree. I guess you need a college degree to be a nurse, but, uh, you know, construction workers, I mean, you name it. And they have to subsidize this with their taxes too. Well, that might end up not being a problem. If the Supreme Court tosses it out 
the whole debate will basically show that there are limits to a president's power, especially if you have a large block in the Supreme Court appointed by other presidents of the other party um, that aren't going to wink and nod at this stuff just because it helps young people. But voters were split on this, 50 to 47 percent, according to CNN exit polls. Does it matter? Joe Biden wanted to get young people excited about what he was doing for them. Number two, Washington Post, months of disputes between Justice Department prosecutors and FBI agents over how to best recover classified documents from Mar-a-Lago led to a tense showdown near the end of last year, according to four people familiar with the discussions. This is all about what's called the raid, although the raid had a court order. Prosecutors argued that new evidence suggested, this is back when, that Trump was knowingly concealing secret documents at his Palm Beach home, urged the FBI to conduct a surprise raid at the property. But two senior FBI officials who would be in charge of leading the search, they resisted. They said it was too combative and proposed instead to seek Trump's permission to search his property, according to these sources. Which, of course, if you take the darkest view, would give him notice to hide certain things. If you take a more optimistic view, maybe he just missed a bunch of stuff. Because we now know that when that when the FBI showed up unannounced, more than 100 classified items, including one document describing a foreign government's military defenses, including nukes, uh, were found. So you had, it's interesting, it's a different um, cultural view of the political situation. FBI agents in the Washington field office had sought to slow down the probe, urging caution, given its extraordinary sensitivity. Some of them just wanted to close the criminal investigation altogether after Trump's legal team said a diligent search had been conducted, all known classified records had been turned over. So the FBI folks in the field office here in D.C., knew that, you know, a raid on the home of the former president, a Republican by a Democratic administration, was not going to look great, was politically explosive. But the prosecutors had a different view, and of course they prevailed. Um, they were worried that, and, and there was a lot of worry that people outside would second-guess it and so forth, the prosecutor said that the FBI, by failing to treat Trump as it had other government employees who were not truthful about classified records, could threaten the nation's security. And as evidence surfaced, suggesting Trump or his team was holding back sensitive records, the prosecutors pushed for quick action to recover them. And obviously, the prosecutors won. And just as obviously, there was a bunch of classified materials there, despite previous searches by Trump's team, despite previous assurances that everything that might be more classified have been turned over. But the internal tension, I think, is interesting. Number three. So Christopher Wray, FBI director, was interviewed uh, by Brett Baer yesterday on Special Report. And this has to do with the lab leak theory. Christopher Wray said that the COVID-19 most likely originated from a lab incident in Wuhan. First time he's taken a position on that. And at the same time, you had the earlier revelation 
of a classified report obtained by the Wall Street Journal about the Energy Department's position that COVID might well have leaked from that lab, which remember, in 2020, you weren't allowed to say that. Facebook would take it down, even if you were an eminent scientist. It was verboten. It was off the table. It was a fringe conspiracy. It was crazy town. Now you have the head of the FBI. Here's the quote. The FBI has for quite some time now assessed that the origins of the pandemic are most likely a potential lab incident in Wuhan. The Chinese government, seems to me, has been doing its best to try to thwart and obfuscate the work here, the work we're doing, and that's unfortunate for everybody. So the Energy Department says it has low confidence. FBI has medium confidence. We may never know for sure, but that was a pretty dramatic statement by the head of the FBI on Fox. Which brings me to a little sidebar here on this thing, and that involves John Stewart. You've probably all forgotten this. I know I briefly had. Back in early 2021, when there was this de- starting to be more of a debate about the origins of COVID, but it still was sort of not being fully debated. John Stewart was on Stephen Colbert's show. And because there had been uh, some skepticism about, you know, it came from a bat and a food market a few blocks away. And every, it, this was a period where it was being widely dismissed, even in, in early 2021. So on his Apple show, John Stewart is looking back to that time. And he said the larger problem was not the actual origins of COVID, but an inability to see the world beyond absolutes. Uh, Stewart says, the larger problem with all this is the inability to discuss things that are within the realm of possibility without falling into absolutes and litmus testing each other for our political allegiances as it arose from that. My bigger problem with that was I thought it was a pretty good bit that expressed how I felt. And the two things that came out of it were, I'm racist against Asian people, and how dare I align myself with the alt-right. What Stewart said at the time was, And, you know, he did this with a requisite number of jokes. But, oh, my God, there's a novel respiratory coronavirus overtaking Wuhan in China. What do we do? Oh, you know, who could we ask? The Wuhan Novel Respiratory Coronavirus Lab. The disease is the same name as the lab. That's just a little too weird, don't you think? So he took the position that this was a real possibility, that it can't just be a coincidence, and he got all of this heat from the left, which used to love John Stewart at The Daily Show. How dare you? I mean, actually being called a racist and adopting the views of the alt-right, that, that's not John Stewart. Come on. So he said the backlash was so intense, he might as well have gotten Hillary for president tattooed across his forehead. The part of it I don't like is the absolutes and the dismissive like, F you, I'm done with you. I will never forgive you. You have crossed an unforgivable line. You have expressed an opinion that is antithetical to mine or not mine. And, you know, I just think he really nails it with that. You know, you can like somebody for years and years and then they go on a TV show or they go on Twitter and they say, here's what I believe about X. And you, how dare you believe that about X? I don't believe that about X. Nobody believes that about X. You are a creep. And then you get all this abuse. Not just that you're wrong or I disagree. I mean, that's okay. We want that. We want debate. 
It was the fact that it wasn't being debated that made Jon Stewart's remarks such a big effing deal. And instead, he gets called a racist. Seriously. So I just wanted to remind everybody about that. And, you know, Stewart talking about it on his Apple TV show, uh, I think, brings it around quite nicely in light of these latest developments, particularly the comments of the FBI director. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Number four, Jonathan Capehart works for the Washington Post. He also has a weekend show on MSNBC. Very nice guy. I disagree with him a lot politically, but he's a lovely guy, even if he is sort of in the tank for the Biden administration. Um, so Axios has an exclusive that Capehart resigned from the Washington Post editorial board after a dispute over an editorial about 2024, leaving the paper with an all-white editorial board. So you got to remember that Washington Post is based in a city where nearly half the population is black. So if the Washington Post has an editorial board that has no black members, that is troubling. Uh, New York Times, by contrast, has three people of color on its editorial board. Um, Capehart had been on this editorial board since 2007. Now, he still is very involved with the Post. He's a columnist. He's an associate editor. He does a podcast through the Washington Post. But he quit the editorial board. Um, And it was about an editorial, the runoff between... Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker in Georgia. Soon, the day after the piece ran, or soon after the piece ran, he turned in his resignation. It doesn't sort of explain what it was about the column, or the editorial, I should say, that bothered him, but that's a pretty big step because it's prestigious to be a member of the Washington Post editorial board. Spokesperson for the Post telling Axios, the Post opinion section is committed to diverse representation in all its pages and plans to further expand the range of voices. So I think they'll get some other people in there, at least as contributing columnists, it seems to me. And it just so happens that Washington Post is facing uh, pretty tough business pressures, did not break even last year, which may not have pleased Jeff Bezos, because it invested a lot of money in new editorial and so forth, trying to become more of a national newspaper. New York Times has always been a national newspaper. Washington Post, for years and years, was very much a local newspaper that had national impact uh, because, you know, just think Watergate and Pentagon Papers because it reports in the nation's capital. Um, So, tough time for the Washington Post. I want to get to number five now, and we're going to brand this as the deep dive. I'm going to look for stories where I can spend more than a couple of minutes and get a little deeper on what it means and what the implications are, and just, or just have some fun with it. So, this is one from The Atlantic. And I'm not sure I really buy the premise, but it's an interesting attempt. I think it's a little bit of a stretch. Begins by saying this. Many people just won't waste time on hold with private companies, but with the government as they try to navigate the maddening labyrinth. That's such a journalistic word, labyrinth. You don't see people walking down the street saying, boy, that was quite a labyrinth I just saw. 
of benefits programs. In other words, when you're calling um, big tech company, if they even bother to answer the phone, you get really pissed off when you get jerked around and you get this recording like, your call is important to us. So if you would hang on for three more hours because we're too cheap to hire enough people to get to you in less than two hours or four hours, the airlines are notorious for this, um, we are sorry, but screw it. You have no choice. But the argument in the Atlantic piece is that when you're dealing with government, it's just sort of like, well, what do you expect? It's government. And we shouldn't accept, accept such experiences, says this piece. Good governments should make fixing these everyday failures a priority. And they might help bolster the case for democracy. So this is where we take the giant leap. Uh, international survey by Pew Research found that only 41% of Americans are satisfied that democracy is working well, compared with 65% in Germany, 66% in Canada, 76% in New Zealand, 79% in Sweden. Uh, 20 years ago, about 60% of Americans had faith in the U.S. government. Now, it's down to an abysmal 39%. Well, I mean, because government isn't functioning very well. People are down on the direction of the country. That is true. Um, and so now all roads seem to lead to bad hold music. I love that line. I guess I'd rather have the bad music than the constant, like, you know, your call's important to us. Just sit there. We can call you back. Of course, we probably won't call you back. But if you want to hang up, it's one less person for us to worry about. I mean, we've all been through this, right? But it's interesting. Basically, what the piece is arguing is that when you come into contact with government, such as having to call the IRS or having to call maybe it's local government about your driver's license or having to call about a tax bill from the state government or having to call about eligibility for a federal loan, you know, and you get the runaround and you get put on hold and you don't have people coming on who are competent to answer your questions. This makes you think, it serves as a sort of a small-scale proxy to make you think that government doesn't work. After all, we rely on our personal experiences. So you can read uh, a news story saying the Government Accountability Office found that the responsiveness uh, to consumer complaints at such, such an agency was really bad, and we recommend blah, blah, blah. But you feel it, you, you touch it, you smell it, and it's a really bad smell when you're getting jerked around by the government and you have to devote your precious time to either being on hold or dealing with people who are not competent to solve your problem. That's what it makes you think. Um, when we deal with a problem we didn't create, going back to the piece, uh, oh, this guy got billed some outrageous electricity charge, so he's pissed off. Or vacations ruined by an incompetent airline, or hospital billing errors, or mix-up at the IRS. All we can really do is go online for a customer service number and cross our fingers that, by some miracle, the call won't consume the entire day, or worse. 
when a person coping with cancer treatment spends hours on the phone with insurance companies or Medicaid, she may wonder why her society is so cruel or incompetent or both. Now, the author of this is obviously liberal because there's a couple of shots here of Trump. I don't know what he has to do with the peace. But then it circles around to saying that experience with distant power centers may also lead to conspiratorial thinking, paranoid notions about who's really pulling the levers. Two in five Americans now agree that it is definitely or probably true that regardless of who is officially in charge of the government and other organizations, there is a single group of people who secretly control events and rule the world together. Yowza. Uh, You know, there is a lot of belief these days in conspiracy theories. They've always been around. Um, Now he goes on to say, look, authoritarian governments are worse at helping their citizens. Good luck trying to complain to the Chinese Communist Party or the Kremlin. But, you know, for democracy to be saved, he quotes Winston Churchill as calling it the worst form of government except for all those other forms that have been tried, which is, you know, a a witty and cynical way of saying, yeah, democracy sucks, but it's still better than living in a communist country. And, And there's a quick reference here to this is why President Biden's recent focus on State of the Union address on junk fees was wise. And I agree with that because I remember interviewing Clinton White House officials for my book, Spin Cycle, and they would talk about putting out these small things and, you know, kind of derided a small ball. But at the time, it was V-chips uh, for parents to stop their kids from watching stuff they thought they shouldn't be watching and other things like that that wasn't, weren't actually going to change the world but made people feel like the government was hearing them or they had a little bit more control in their lives because of something that the White House did. And with President Biden doing that on a number of things, you know, the fees to change your airline seat so you could sit with your kids, you know, stuff we should just be able to take for granted. And there are a number of other initiatives like that, too. Again, very easy to dismiss by the big macro thinkers who are worrying more about how do we cope with the threat from China, which appears to be helping Russia and all that. But for the average person who doesn't have much contact with government, uh, that could be a tangible benefit and could create a little bit of feeling that at least at some points, democracy is working. Certainly, most people would say right now, democracy is not working. I don't claim that this would be a panacea. Again, I think it's a little bit of a stretch. But it's an interesting argument about this increasingly, you know, it used to be children. (laughs) Back in the day, I mean, 15 years ago, you called up and like someone would answer the phone. And they would try to deal with your complaint. Maybe they solved it, maybe they didn't. But you could talk to a human being. I mean, the phone trees, press three if it involves this. And so you press three and then it says, uh, however, uh, press press four if you really want this. And then, you know, uh, our agents are busy helping other customers. I mean, I'm just, I can hear it in my head. I've had to deal with it so much. It drives me nuts. It probably drives you nuts. Whether it's the key to saving democracy, I don't know. But that's our deep dive for today. And that brings us to the part where I say, I appreciate your listening to all of this stuff. Uh, it's an investment of your time, and I try to make it worth your time. And we'll see you tomorrow with more BuzzMeter. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts, and Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. 
Put the power of over 100 meteorologists and the worldwide resources of Fox in your hands with the Fox Weather Podcast. Precise, personal, powerful. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.